and welcome to Net Zero for Nothing, the podcast from the National Home Improvement Council, connecting industry, government and householders on the pathway towards zero carbon homes. This episode of the podcast is part of the NHIC member series, where we introduce member companies of the NHIC to listeners and where we'll get to know better the thought leaders and inspirational people from across the home improvement sector. The NHIC is a member organisation dedicated to improving the nation's homes together. We've been around since the early 1970s and our strategic priorities are to clearly demonstrate the contribution existing homes will make to the climate emergency. The NHIC is the umbrella organisation for the UK's repair, maintenance and home improvement sector. Collectively, we are the voice of home improvement. If there is a better way to achieve net zero, create green jobs for life and improve building safety, I'd like to know what it is. I'm your host, Anna Scothan, and today we are going to talk about meeting the government's net zero emissions targets with David Cowburn, Chief Operating Officer at NAPIT. Welcome, David. Thank you, Anna, and thank you for inviting me onto the podcast. It's my pleasure. Thank you so much for joining us today, David. And I know you are keen to talk to us about the role installers are set to play in realising the government's emissions targets. But before we get into that, I know that you've been at NAPIT for over 15 years and before that you were involved in certification for over 30. I'd love to know what first got you interested in working in the home improvement certification sector? Well, my early career was in the solid fuel industry. Uh, and I was involved in research and development and product design. Um, and one defining realization came to me as a product designer. And that was that a safe and successful product doesn't happen just in the laboratory where I was working. Uh, if a product is going to work the way that a designer intended it, it needs to be correctly specified so that it's only used in the right situations. It has to be installed correctly. And in most cases, it has to be maintained appropriately as well. All of these things are needed to realize the designer's intention. So that really brought home to me the importance of of taking my products that I design and installing them correctly. Now, my career moved on from designing appliances to actually running a test house where we were testing and certifying products. That was boilers and and fuels at the time, Uh, what became CE marking. Uh, And as schemes began to be developed for installation work in the 1990s, I started to become involved in training, assessing and certifying installers. They started with heating engineers, solid fuel because of my background, but as privatisation in that industry kicked in, I became involved in the oil industry and the gas industry. And I was involved in setting up the gas industry's accredited certification scheme uh, back in the 90s, which is still used to this day. That was originally through Corgi and now GasSafe. And that was the first accredited certification scheme about the competence of individuals that there had been. Uh, Next came electricians. And then in time, all of the other building services and even building fabric work on improving properties such as roofing, glazing, insulation and, and so on. So the breadth of certification that I've been involved in has evolved over that time. Uh, But what strikes me looking back over the 30 years of doing this is that the emphasis at the start was very much on consumer safety and the focus was primarily safety. While that hasn't gone away, the importance of compliant installation has increasingly been used to support government initiatives to encourage 
the use of renewable energy, for instance, and to improve the energy efficiency of buildings. So this recent move towards um, net zero that we're talking about today, the certification business has moved along uh, in stride with that. What also strikes me is that certification remains as relevant and important today as it did at the start of this journey. Absolutely. And that's fascinating. Um, NAPIT are one of several certification schemes that you've mentioned um, that run across the various aspects of home improvement. Could you tell us a little bit more about NAPIT and also why certification and competent person schemes, why are they important and why should listeners make sure they use them? Yeah, certainly. So NAPIT started life as a trade association. Uh, and it specialised in the inspection and testing, that's the IT in NAPIT, uh, of uh, electrical installations. Now, personally, I first got involved in NAPIT when I was running the gas scheme uh, at Zurich certification in the 1990s. And we worked collaboratively to set up a, uh, a UCAS accredited, UCAS are an accredited accreditation organisation for UK government we set up the first UCAS accredited certification scheme for electrical work. Now, that was in the States of Jersey, interestingly enough, not, not the UK. Um, but they were keen on using accreditation, and we went along and, and, and did that. And then a few years later, the building regulations in the main UK, they were amended uh, so that competent person schemes were expanded to cover electrical work, which hadn't originally been the case. And when that happened in 2004, NAPIT became one of the first scheme operators of the electrical, what's, what's often referred to as the Part P scheme, because it's Part P of the building regulations that require it. Uh, NAPIT also at that time became one of the first Trustmark scheme operators in 2005. And Trustmark is an organisation that underpinned the consumer protection uh, around uh, the, the areas of work that we're involved in. But interestingly, uh, you know, at the start of this journey into the certification of installers, uh, the demand wasn't limited to electrical work, even though that was our background. So over the next few years, we expanded the scope of NAPIT schemes to cover plumbing, heating, ventilation, air conditioning, and then building fabric improvements such as windows and doors, roofing, insulation, and, and so on. It, it then became a natural progression because we were starting to certify anything that could be certified. When government introduced schemes to uh, encourage renewable energy installation, uh, we became one of the first certification bodies to do that under what's called the microgeneration certification scheme. And then when uh, schemes were developed around energy efficiency measures, uh, you may have heard of the Green Deal uh, and other similar initiatives. I have, similarly, yes. So similarly, we, you know, we became certification bodies in all of those schemes. Uh, and along the way, uh, tried to become a one-stop shop, broad-based certification body. And one of the reasons we did that is that all of these schemes actually overlap. So their requirements are often similar uh, and installers need to join each one of them to do their business. And we wanted to make that as easy as possible for an installer to do through a single organization. So that's kind of the ethos of NAPIT's approach here. We now have over 15,000 certified businesses covering all of the sectors that I've described and the schemes that are involved uh, in these sectors, um, particularly in England and Wales, where the building regulation schemes apply, but also in the wider UK. Uh, we operate in all regions of the UK. And what we're trying to do, of course, is to make sure that the work installers do is to the right standards and for their customers, 
that they're accountable when things go wrong. And that's as important as working to the standards. Registration schemes have to look at both business and their employees. We can't simply look at the competence of individuals. For example, you can't set requirements against an individual for something that only a business can do, such as holding appropriate business insurance like public liability. Of course, yeah. And so on, yeah. So the logic is that we work to validate the competence of individuals and the management systems and the processes that businesses work to. When we do look at competence of individuals, this does vary from one sector to another. So some sectors rely quite heavily on formal qualifications. Other sectors haven't got such strong qualifications. And where that's the case, we will assess people directly against competence criteria, which are agreed at industry level. So this isn't making the rules up. We, We work with industry to identify what the criteria are. But in all cases, once we've determined that the individuals are competent, we evaluate the way a company is run. And we always attend site to inspect the installation work that they carry out. So this isn't just a scheme where you can apply and pay a fee to get listed, like an advertising scheme. Mm. This is about being audited. It's about proving your competence. And it doesn't just stop at the the beginning. Every year, we will go back to a business. We will go out and see work that they're doing. uh, And that's a continuous surveillance cycle that that we carry on doing. Now, the logic of third-party certification is not for us to check every job that an installer does. The beauty of the system is that if a company demonstrates their compliance to a level that we can be confident in, they can approve their own work without every single job being inspected. And the, the reason for doing that at the start was to reduce the workload on building control offices around the country. Uh, where the approach in building control is to attend each site where building works are going on. That reduces cost for installers and it reduces cost for consumers. But it all comes back on us being confident in the installer's competence. That said, things can still go wrong. So the other side of running a scheme is to make sure that the certified business is responsible for seeking a resolution where things have gone wrong. So they sign up to a process where they must do that and they must have suitable procedures to to attempt to do it. And if that doesn't work, the safety net then becomes that it can be escalated to a scheme operator such as NAPIT. And when that happens, we get involved and we attempt to mediate and find a solution. We may, if that doesn't work, take sanctions against the company. So the scheme has got teeth as as, uh, as well as assistance. The ultimate step, of course, is for us to withdraw certification so that they can't continue to be uh, able to, to certify their own work. So from a consumer perspective, it's that combination of confidence that a tradesperson has proven their competence and that they'll do the work right. It can be a cost saving because you don't have to involve uh, building control and also support in any uh, issues, resolving any of the issues that come along. So that together attempts to help both installers and consumers. Yeah, that's really interesting um, because so often a householder might think um, it's going to be cheaper to use somebody um, with the grey economy or ask their mate mate to do something and not look down the the competent person's route and think that that's um, a level too high. But but in actual fact, your home is your biggest asset. 
And it's important that you maintain it properly, that anybody that does work in your home is competent, uses compliant products and is able to do the work properly. And, and by using an installer that's a member of a registered competent person scheme, you've got that extra guarantee as well as, as you said, somewhere to go if things do go wrong with the job. Yes, that's right. And, and in some circumstances, uh, many of the jobs that they're doing, there's an expectation that they will be certified. If you try to sell your house, then your solicitor is going to go to the local authority and ask for evidence that the work that was done on your house was compliant with the building regulations. And if you haven't used building control, there's an expectation that there will be a certificate from a competent person scheme member, which you won't get from an unregistered installer. Absolutely, absolutely. It's not it's not just about paying in cash. It, it's about all the other things that, that come with that and why it's important to to use the right processes. Um, and so um, what do you think are the most important things that government and other stakeholders connected with the repair, maintenance and home improvement sector should be doing in the race to zero carbon within existing homes? Well, that's a great question, Anna, and, and there is no simple or single answer to it. I knew you were uh, going to so, say that. <laughs> uh, I'm going to try and break it down a little bit. There's uh, no silver bullet. Yeah, that's right. However, you know, the challenge is ambitious. We know that, but it needs to be. So industry can't point at the government alone to drive the initiative towards uh, zero carbon. But at the same time, industry can't meet that ambition without the support of government. So both of these sides of the coin need to be thought about. So to answer your question specifically means looking at all of the aspects of this race to zero carbon and identifying and solving the issues in each case. So I'll go through a few. Uh, you know, one issue is technology. So there is talk about uh, different technological solutions. My particular area that I'm talking about today is residential heating, as you know. And in this sector, uh, you know, there is talk about replacing uh, natural gas with hydrogen, uh, replacing boilers with heat pumps um, or, or direct electric heating and things of that nature. Now, decisions on the approach to be taken or combining those approaches needs to lie at a strategic level with government because industry need to know the journey that we're on particularly manufacturers need to know what it is they're going to be building in the next few decades. Uh, and certainty really matters. So certainty about the pathway will drive investment by the manufacturing sector. And in turn, volume increases in volume of manufacturing some of these technologies will drive the price down. We've seen this before. If we take, for example, photovoltaic panels, we see solar panels on a lot of houses now as you drive around. In the last decade, decade, they've fallen from a level of, of cost where they needed a really high subsidy to encourage anyone to install them to a situation today where there is no subsidy, but the installation levels are still quite high because the price came down so completely over that time period. Once you've got the technological solutions, there are infrastructure implications to that. And it all depends on the approach. So, uh, for instance, you know, if we replace natural gas with hydrogen, you need to have the infrastructure to have quite a, power, a, a high level of power to uh, produce hydrogen from water or methane. So you need quite a lot of electricity to do that. You also need to generate and store that, transport and store that hydrogen. 
um, in, in the same way. We've got a network that does that for natural gas, but the seals on the pipes will be different because it's a different gas and so on. So you've got to think about what the infrastructure cost will be and put that in place. Um, high heat pumps and direct electrical heating, they will need more electricity supplied to homes than is currently the case. So that puts a greater demand on the network. It puts a greater demand on the power generation industry to produce enough electricity to meet these solutions. So that needs to be planned in advance. You, you, you can't get there in a quick step, particularly if at the same time you're shutting down coal-fired power stations and replacing them with, with wind and water, hydro, uh, large-scale, uh, low-carbon generation. One of the problems with renewable zero carbon power generation is that it can be intermittent, maybe based on when the wind is blowing. You may have tidal generation, which is based on, on when the tide is coming in and out. And therefore, to, um, to use the electricity effectively, you need to think about storing it in ways that we haven't had to do previously. So the infrastructure needs to be there to match the actual appliances that people are going to put into their homes. Probably the big one, and the big one for me in my industry, is, is, is the resource to actually carry out the installations themselves. And we need to think about the whole supply chain. But my primary interest is in installers. We need a competent workforce that aligns with the technological solutions that are going to drive this forward. We've got a workforce that is aligned to fossil fuels at the moment. There are some easy wins, particularly in competence terms, I'm thinking here. But if we were looking at conventional electrical heating, for instance, we've got many, many electricians available. Uh, and if we were replacing natural gas with hydrogen, we have gas engineers. So you know, it, 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 at the moment, looking at the competent person schemes, uh, which the government authorised, there are over 100,000 certified installation businesses with the right skill set to do both of those two technologies. They're available now and would only need really minor training. The ambition to use heat pumps at high volume, that's a slightly different kettle of fish. Because here we're talking about an increase from a starting point of only around about a thousand installation businesses. And of and course, I'll just jump in there, David. Of course, government have part of their 10 point plan on an industrial green revolution in their, their race to net zero is they've, they've stated that heat pumps are gonna be part of the solution, which is, which is why you're focusing down onto that specific technology. That's absolutely right. And they've stated an ambition to install 600,000 heat pumps a year. Now, to achieve that, the thousand installers we've currently got haven't got the capacity to do it. Now, the Heat Pump Association have identified that over the next decade, we've got to get that 1,000 installers to 40,000. So to do that, we have to persuade industry to invest. To get industry to invest, there's an element where government may need to provide funding. That's certainly part of the picture. But we've also got to find a way of convincing industry that the plan is worth investing in. It has to be sustainable in the long term. And when I talk about industry here, I don't just mean installers. I mean the awarding organisations who are being asked to develop qualifications. They have to know that enough people will do their qualifications to make it worth their, their while. The training providers who are going to have to invest in equipment and they're going to have to train the trainers to deliver this training, they've got to know that they're going to get a return on their investment. So it isn't just about government providing funding, it's about 
convincing industry that this is a sustainable long-term plan that people can sign up to. We need to think about consumers as well. Uh, so in the sixth carbon budget that was published by, by government, there's a figure in there of uh, a survey of consumers where 65% of consumers either had no awareness at all about low carbon heating or a general awareness which didn't really equate to knowledge. And only 5% described themselves as sufficiently knowledgeable. Now that tells us that consumers will need to be educated and we need to think about all of the touch points with consumers and not just think about the usual advertising and social media. Information can be transferred to consumers in different ways. So, for example, when you receive a utility bill, you could receive information about zero carbon. But also think about the well-informed installer, because a well-informed installer is a great resource for educating consumers. They're going through the doors of consumers on a regular basis. How do we get them to pass the right messages along? So one thing is to get a consistent message. Give them the message to share. Give them the tools to share it, you know, whether that's a leaflet or links to, to common information. So if we give installer resources that they can build into their own documentation, use with their quotes, put on their websites and hand across to consumers, that's a really powerful tool. And a lot of people do get their advice directly from the, the engineers that pass through their doorways. Absolutely. And, and it's it, it's also um, we've also got to recognise that um, the houses have got to be if, if, if we saying that heat pumps is the solution um, or I know it's a, a solution. But but anything that happens on this journey, the house has got to be ready for that. It, it's not just a simple take this out, put that in. There's other things that have got to happen as part of that, um, uh, as a part of that retrofit agenda. Um, and it's that engineer, that trusted person that's going regularly into a person's home that's able to help the homeowner understand what needs to be done to their house to get them ready and take them on that journey around having a different way to, to heat and operate their home. That's right. And you know, there's a phrase that's regularly used in the industry uh, where we, we tend to talk about fabric first, which is make your house suitable first and then put the technology in it second. Uh, and, and, and you're right that the, uh, you know, the installation community are a big part of, of driving that agenda. I, mean, I think one thing that, that's particularly um, true to think about is that, that households are often starting with a completely different beginning the, the start point in their journey is very different and therefore when we think about funding and we do have to think about funding you know, all of these solutions cost more than staying as we are at least in the short term the cost may come down in the future but if we do that we need to think about being smart enough to provide that support where it's needed there's a big difference between somebody in fuel poverty or somebody in a low-income household than there is with the able to pay sector. There's a big difference in regulating landlords compared to convincing homeowners to, to part, part way with their money. So I think we need to be smart and flexible. We need to think about those who are disadvantaged and those who are in fuel poverty. A large proportion of what we're trying to target here are the able to pay, the well off. And there, you need to convince them of the benefit of doing what they're going to, what we were asking them to do. 
particularly by persuading them that there is money to be saved, and there usually is. So the investment can be returned. It might not be a quick return, but it can be returned. And, and, and you know, if you're minded to and, and you're able to pay, then it's better to convince you than to pay you. We've seen schemes in the past where, you know, frankly, people were putting solar panels on roofs because they got a better return from that than putting money in the bank. We shouldn't be about that. Government shouldn't be about that. It should be about helping achieve the agenda here. I haven't mentioned regulations, but regulations can be used to an extent. We could regulate the rented sector far more easily than the, than the owned sector. We can regulate new building relatively easily. Um, however, with existing buildings, it's a bit more difficult. But, but there is one way you can do things, which is often referred to as consequential improvement. So here it would be if you're making changes anyway, that you are required to make certain specific changes. So you have to upgrade when you make a change. You can't just, just replace like for like. There are examples of this that have been successfully deployed in the past. Uh, there's a scheme called Boiler Plus, for instance, where if you replace your boiler, you must do so in a way that also makes certain other improvements to your energy use. And, and similar things could be considered so that if you were changing any part of your, your house that is energy using or energy saving, that there are rules around that and, and that it makes you do things under the under a regulatory regime. But you know, I've, I've talked a lot about what, what government should do and what in other parts of industry should should do, but but you're know, just thinking about NAPIC, what are NAPIC doing, for instance? Uh, you know, we're doing a lot of work at the moment where we're engaging with government, we're sitting on industry committees, and what we're trying to do is simplify and reduce the complexity of all these schemes that exist. You know, one constraint that we have as a certification body is that we are there to check compliance. We're not there to help people achieve it. However, that becomes a problem because if you can help installers to comply, we will have a more successful outcome. So whilst it isn't necessarily something that NAPIC can directly achieve, that working with industry, we could get to a scenario where the tools to do the job right are provided to the installers and that we don't just set rules and then leave them to meet them. We set rules, industry gives them a solution, and then we as a certification body can check that the work that they're doing is safe, sound, and, and, and working properly. That in turn should make it easier for installers to gain approval. That increases the volume of installers available. And if you achieve the kind of simplification and removing duplication that we're trying to, to achieve here, it could reduce confusion for consumers. The world we live in is completely different to even three or four years ago when we think about digital information. Uh, we're in a world now where a, an installer can show their phone to a consumer and with a QR code, that consumer can find out what they're approved for, what work they've done. Uh, it can give us a mechanism for communicating important messages around zero carbon to those consumers in a consistent way and try to make some of this maze of, of, of regulatory regime go away, both for the consumer and the installer. And I think to end this question with, with what, what's needed, as well as doing all of this, which sounds like a mountain, and there's loads of things that I've just thrown out there, it needs to be combined with enthusiasm for the task ahead. Because if everybody's enthusiastic about it, we need leaders, we need 
facilitators throughout government and industry that are willing to take this this journey forward and get us over the finishing line. Of course, absolutely. Um, and and it's not just about asking government for money. It, it's about asking them for that clarity of direction so that industry can align itself, manufacturers can get in place, as you say, the trainers can get in place. It's that it's that direction of travel that uh, and that, that's that's needed. It's not just about about money it's the certainty of the pathway so as you know this is we'd like to finish on something a little bit fun um, this podcast is called net zero for nothing um, what can listeners do for nothing or let's say less than 100 quid um, that would make a huge impact on their own domestic energy bills and prepare their home for the future yeah, that, that, that's a cracker because I've just spent the last 10 minutes talking about how uh, all of these things cost money and need funding support. So, yes, let's let's dial it back to the quick wins, if you like. Uh, I think one thing I would recognise here is that, that most households are different from one another. So some of what I might say would apply to some, but not others. However, you know, I'm going to start with get a smart meter. So smart meters are free. You can get them from your energy provider for nothing. And what they're able to do is make sure that you're well informed about the energy that you're using in your home. Having got it, though, you need to make use of it. So have a look at what it's telling you. See if it educates you about what you might do or the cost of doing certain things, you know, leaving that light on upstairs. What's it really costing? This is the kind of thing that smart meters are able to tell you uh, that you otherwise don't. You, you intuitively know it, but you don't think about it. And there are other things, behavioural changes that cost nothing. And you'll, a lot of people will have heard these before. But you know, if you turn central heating down by a single degree, you can save 300 kilograms of carbon dioxide a year. And that's £55 a year off a typical bill. If you have thermostatic radiator valves in all your rooms, really think about setting different levels in different rooms around your house. It's a very common thing that people have central heating, they have TRV thermostatic radiator valves around the house, but they're only really controlling one space, living in one space and overheating the rest of the house. That, that's really common. I think lots of us are guilty of that. Don't boil full kettles. Even my grandma would probably have said that one, but it's true. You know, It's estimated that boiling the water you need at the time you need it can save 40 pounds a year off somebody's bill. These aren't investing even £100. This is just behavioural change. But when I think about low-cost actions, you, you talked about spending you know, not much more than £100. Again, it depends what, what your house is like to begin with. But you know, is your hot water cylinder lagged? Because if it isn't, a really cheap insulating jacket can save you £18, £20 a year. If you've got drafty windows, then just some cheap, Draft proofing strips from, from a local DIY centre can save you 25 quid a year. Lots of older houses have open chimneys left over from, from open fires. Often they're not used at all. Or a gas decorative fire with an open chimney that isn't being used. A draft excluder stuffed up that chimney can save about 20 pounds a year. Now, I'm quoting figures here. I'm quoting them from the Energy Saving Trust. So one thing anybody can do for free is visit the Energy Saving Trust website because for free, you might be taking the first step and which might be your journey towards zero carbon. 
Absolutely. Thank you so much. And 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 even simple things like putting a, a drawing your curtains, putting a going back to the old fashioned days of having a curtain over your external doors make huge differences to the comfort of your own home. And they are things that we can do. So so while organisations like NAPIT and, and you at the helm of it are, are in your meetings with government and working on behalf of installers to try and make things more simple and to, to help with the certainty of the pathway that the, the technology and the infrastructure and that the resources are all being there. There are things that people can do and listeners can do at home from today that are going to reduce the load on their home, reduce their energy bills and set them on the right pathway towards net zero carbon. So thank you very much, David. Um, thank you for listening to this episode of the Net Zero for Nothing podcast. Be sure to follow us across social media, searching for at the NHIC and subscribe to our podcast, Net Zero for Nothing, for future episodes. Also, don't forget to check out the show notes for links to all the references David has mentioned during this podcast, as well as key hints and tips for achieving net zero for nothing in your home. Thanks for listening.